answer. Um, this psalm has been and continues to be very helpful for me. Now, I wish I could say, like, I've figured this out, and guys, from my mountaintop, I'll share with you how to be confident in the Lord. I haven't. Uh, last year, that, that job came to an end, that time of ministry, looking for a job, and all the same things cropped up again, where I'm interviewing at different churches and, and working and fighting against, oh, what do I have to be confident in? Where's my identity? It has stayed with me, and this psalm continues to be a place of hope and, and comfort, um, and I think it can be for, for you as well. Um, because what God offers us is something much better than trying to find our sense of identity in anything that we've done. All right, you may be in here and you may think you're pretty impressive. That's another problem. And that's another sermon for another time. But needless to say, you probably need to humble yourself. Okay, that's all I'll say on that. However, I think for the large majority of us, we come in and we have some insecurities, right? We're asking the question and we're either really confident because we happen to have done something or we're trying to find it. We're trying to find significance. We're trying to find a reason that I can be confident. The Lord has something better for us because this Psalm tells us that our search for significance is found in God's significance. It's found in God's significance. And your identity in Christ is not just something that we say, but it actually defines everything about you. And if we really were to grasp and understand and believe and experience this, life would not have to be struggling with imposter syndrome we would be consistently thrilled with wonder that God has made us to be something that we could never be on our own. He defines everything about us. And this is, this is the three things that he says taken from this passage. In Christ, we are fully known, we are fully loved, and we're fully his. We're fully known, we're fully loved, and fully his. So let's look at this passage. First, we are fully known. So I'm sure most of you have probably read this passage before. Psalm 139 is a pretty well-known psalm. In case you didn't catch it, the psalm tells you that God knows you completely. He, he knows you fully. Look at verse 1. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. He has not just known us, but he has, he's searched us. He's considered us. It's not a, it's not a cursory knowledge. Like he picks you out of the crowd and he's like, yeah, I think I, I think I know, I think I know him. No, he, he knows you completely, fully. He notes when we sit down and when we rise up. Right? He sees all of your movement. Right? In this day and age, if you have like one of those ring video cameras, it, it's something like that. Right? It knows every time you move in your house, there's a camera there to, to, to watch you. That's, that's something like God and his, his knowledge and his oversight on you and your life. He, he sees you. 
He knows you. He sees you from afar. He discerns your thoughts. And that, that's not saying that he's up somewhere in heaven and he kind of looks down and can barely make out what you're thinking. No, that, that's, it, actually, it actually means from a distance. So in other words, like God already knows from a distance what you're going to think and you're eventually going to get there and think it, but he already, he's already seen it. It's, it's from, from a distance. And look at verse 4. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. It's not even that God is closer than our own skin. Like that, that doesn't even do it justice. He knows you better than you know yourself. And you know yourself as well as anybody knows you. But God knows you even before you think a word, even before you think a thought. And the Lord hems us in, verse 5 tells us. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. In other words, there's, there's no place to hide. We can't go back. We can't move forward without the Lord being there. His hand is, is on us. It's directing us. It's leading us. Now, David could have just described God's omniscience, which basically just means he's all-knowing in general, right? God, God knows everything. But David takes the time to consider the fact that he knows you completely. You personally. Charles Spurgeon says, it is ever our wisdom to lay truth home to ourselves. Right? The truth about God is meant to be applied to you. It impacts you. And here we see that God knows you personally, completely. He knows the real you. Years ago, I read a book called The Gift of Being Yourself. And while it's a pretty lame title, it's actually a great book. The author talks about how so much of our lives, we try to maintain false images of ourselves to other people. We don't want them to know the real me, so I manufacture an image that then they interact with. So hopefully they'll be more impressed. And he says that we do that with people, but then he says we also do that with God. We try to show God this false image of myself in order for him to hopefully be impressed. And isn't that so often our struggle after you sin? You try to convince yourself, you try to convince other people, and ultimately you try to convince God, oh, I'm not really like that. It, it was just a mistake. I just, I fell into it. That's not really me. And we try to put up this false image as if God doesn't already know you completely, right? How often do you find yourself compartmentalizing your life so that you can go to church and have Christian friends and occasionally read your Bible and then somehow God 
will just see that instead of over here where you're clicking on the link to porn or where you're thinking those bitter thoughts or where you're getting drunk on the weekend or you're sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend. God sees that. He, he knows that. And he doesn't just see the good things that you do in church. He knows all of you. He fully knows you. What you try to avoid thinking about, he, he sees it. And it's, it's not just you with the, you know, the bad breath, the matted hair, the B.O. when you wake up, not really excited about life. You know, the, the person you, you try to keep from other people for their own good, right? No, he, he sees the you that secretly wants your friend to fail so you look good. He sees the you that overeats to cope with your stress. He sees the you that, that if you're honest, you actually just want to fully indulge in sin because you think it's going to make you happy. He sees the you that's really terrified your life is going to fall apart. He sees the you that feels you're maybe one moment away from losing control. He sees the you that fills your life with so much noise and activity so that you don't have to face the real reality of how you feel. That's what God sees. He knows and sees you completely, utterly, totally. Now the psalmist contemplates this reality and he responds with amazement in verse 6. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's, it's high. I, I cannot attain it. And I think he's, he's tapping into this reality that, okay, there's a couple hundred people here. God knows every single person here, not in general, completely, personally, intimately. We, don't, we can't even know ourselves. That's a lot of power that God has. That's a lot of ability that God has. That should make us feel a sense of wonder. Wow, God's pretty amazing. But you know another feeling that maybe you've felt even as I've talked about these things? Shame. Because I think oftentimes we actually believe that we can hide the worst parts about us from everyone, including God. But you can't. He sees you. You may have deceived everyone else, but God sees you. And that type of knowledge is uncomfortable it should make you squirm a little bit because God sees you that much. And our natural response 
to that, knowledge is, is protection, right? We want to protect ourselves. No, that, that, that goes a little too deep. That's a little too real. And in a straight reading of this text, it seems to be where David goes, right? Like David contemplates God's utter knowledge of him. He says, wow, that's amazing. And then he thinks, I can't go anywhere without God seeing me, right? And that's, that's where he goes. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. In other words, there's nowhere we can go that God is not there. The highest heavens, he's there. The lowest depths of hell, he's, he's there. Sheol, the wings of the morning, he's there. The furthest place in the ocean, there. Darkness, he's there. He's, he's everywhere. You can't hide. You can't run. We talk about running away from the Lord. In one sense, that's very true. In another way, it's ridiculous. You don't run away from the Lord that somehow you like find a hiding place and God can't see you anymore. No, he completely sees you. You can't run. And one of the reasons why this is the case is because he made you. You're not some separate entity from God. He is your creator. Look at verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You're fully known by God. So stop pretending that he doesn't see you, that he doesn't know you. Stop pretending you're someone you're not. You're not fooling God. He sees. And friends, there's a lot of danger in failing to interact with God as you truly are. Because here's the reality. You won't actually experience and know God. Think about it. That's the danger. If you sin and your impulse is to put up a false image where you try to convince God, I'm really not that bad. You know what his mercy and love and grace will appear to be? Pointless. It won't matter. Because you're still trying to convince God that you're not really a sinner in need of a savior. It's serious. We have to grapple with the fact that God fully knows us. Secondly, you're fully loved. What has captivated me about this psalm as I've studied it over the years is that even as David is confessing that full knowledge that God has of him, his response is not one of terror 
and fear and hiding. It's actually the opposite. It's admiration, it's joy, it's thanks, it's wonder. Look at verse 6 again. It says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high, I cannot attain it. Look at verse 14. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I'm still with you. David recognize what I and I think us so quickly forget. God's full knowledge of us should lead to profound comfort and gratitude because it's rooted in his care, concern, and love for you. Do you realize that God, from before you issued your first breath, knew you? He saw you. He actually formed you. It's, it's not like your parents, you know, did what parents do to produce a child, and you come out, and God's like, oof. I mean, I'll try to do something with, I mean, what a surprise. Wow. Wow. You guys did that. No. God God created you. He, he knits you together. He made you into his image. You're not a mistake. He made you intentionally in all of your complexity. And he, he likes the way you're made because he did it. God created you. And that actually is, is a really profound truth. I've, I've had the privilege um, and sad honor of doing a, a few infant funerals. So infant dying in the womb and, and we're at the graveside. And oftentimes we read verse 15 and 16. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And, and the point that is made is that even a child who never saw the light of day, their life is significant because God knew them. God saw them. God made them. And the same is true of you and I. God made us. You've been made in the image of God. But what's more than that is we were, we entered into a world corrupted by sin, right? Like we from birth are sinful creatures. We're, we're rebellious at heart, and, and God is holy and pure, right? There's, there's a discrepancy there. Even made in the image of God, we have rebelled from birth. 
But the wonderful good news, friends, tonight is that God fully loves us, not just because we are made in his image, but because Jesus' blood was shed on our behalf. And that changes everything. Listen to Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. God says, he, God, chose us in him, Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us before we ever made a decision for adoption through Jesus Christ, according, not happenstance, no, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Do you hear what that's saying? God chose to love you. Fully love you. He saved you knowing the worst things about you. How's that for love? How's that for kindness? You will never surprise God. That is incredible news. Because think about it. We are all searching for friends who fully know us and fully accept us, right? That's what we're after. Your closest friends probably know you the best, and yet they still accept you. You do dumb things, and they're still your friend. It's awesome. That's what friendship is, right? And what happens when you hide things from your friend? Well, there's distance. There's separation. Maybe you've had a friend that has found out something about you, something's happened, and there's a breach of relationship. That's the natural experience we have as people. But you know what? God is the best friend you could ever have. Think about it. Knowledge knows you completely. Love fully loves you fully accepts you. What else do you need? That is love. That is friendship. I want to read a quote for you. How many of you have read, uh, read Knowing God by J.I. Packer? Show of hands. Okay, if you have not read this, you should read this book. It is amazing. I'll show you why. Let me read this passage. It's a long quote, but it's really good. All right, listen to this. He says, J.A. Packer, what matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. And there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me. And no moment, therefore, when his care falters. This is momentous knowledge. 
There is unspeakable comfort, the sort of comfort that energizes, be it said, not enervates or weakens, in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way that I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. There is, certainly, Great cause for humility in the thought that he sees all the twisted things about me that my fellow man do not see, and I am glad, and that he sees more corruption in me than that which I see in myself, which in all conscience is enough. There is, however, equally great incentive to worship and love God in the thought that, oh, guys, this is so amazing. For some unfathomable reason, he wants me as his friend and desires to be my friend and has given his son to die for me in order to realize this purpose. We cannot work out these thoughts here, but merely to mention them is enough to show how much it means to know, not merely that we know God, but that he knows us. He knows us. God has forever declared that you are my child by the blood of Jesus. And it's that knowledge, that love, that actually is the source of our identity. And that's what scripture talks about over and over again. It's God's power and incomprehensible glory that gives our life significance. It's not what you do. Psalm 8 says this. He goes through the heavens declaring the glory of God, and then he says this. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? That should be our response. We have been befriended by the God of the universe, not just generally, but specifically. Intimately, he decided to save you because he loves you. That's where our significance should come from. It's God's love and mercy that gives our life meaning. Romans 8:31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The meaning that you are searching for in life is actually found in the fact that God, because of Christ, has so blessed you that there is nothing on earth that can separate you from that love. You are eternally secure in the love of Christ. And that's a life-altering truth. That's your identity in Jesus and so here's a couple ways that it impacts us. I just want to list two. First, your relationship with other people. Because do you know what happens in your relationships with other people when you're not secure in God's love and acceptance of you? You get insecure. 
and you begin to look to either yourself and your own sense of meaning and significance, or you ask people to bear a weight of defining your identity that they were never meant to have. You place on the person you're dating. You place on the cool person that you want to befriend. You place on them the weight that if I can get you, then my life will have significance. And it's just a terrible way to have relationships. We pretend to be someone we're not so that we're loved and accepted by them. We judge them when they don't accept us. We place an inordinate amount of security in their opinion of us. Our relationships become disordered and hard, frankly, and challenging. But if I'm secure in believing that the God of the universe fully knows and fully loves me, you know what you can do? You can stop pretending. You can stop trying to be someone that you're not. You can actually ask of people just friendship instead of placing on the burden of your identity. You don't have to keep up appearances because you're secure in Jesus. And and when people fail you, of which they most certainly will, your world doesn't have to crumble because you're loved by God and he sees you. He knows you. Psalm 118 verse 6 says, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's the confidence that you and I can have. Your relationships all of a sudden become much more ordered when you're more secure in your identity in Christ more than anything else. Second, there's more freedom to use your gifts and abilities that God has given you. How he made you matters. We, we already talked about that. He made you. He made you uniquely. And your gifts and abilities are meant to be used, but not worshipped. Right? If, if you try to find your identity in what you do, your accomplishments, you will vacillate between two things. One, you will be despairing because there's always someone better than you. And you're never going to arrive. And once you think you've arrived, you realize, oh, this, this can never bear the weight of the identity that I'm putting into it. Or you will come over here and maybe you've made a successful deal or gotten a job or gotten the guy or girl or whatever it is. And you know what you'll have? You'll have vain confidence. And Ecclesiastes couldn't be clear. You, you're chasing after the wind. What you think you have in that moment is actually something that just scatters away. God has something much better for us. Because if those are our two options, you know what we'll do? We'll live in constant fear of failure. Because failure is not just something to learn from. Failure gets into the root of who I am. Right? It gets into my identity. And so when I fail, it's 
it can be drastic because I've attached my sense of self-worth and confidence in what I accomplish. And we won't actually be confident and grow in the things that God has called us to do. Personal illustration. I like golf, all right? I like to consider myself a good golfer. You know the truth, I'm not a good golfer. I'm actually a pretty bad golfer, but I enjoy it. And I like to think of myself as a good golfer. Now, my wife very kindly got me a few lessons uh, at Christmas time. And so I, you know, in like March, I go to my first lesson. I haven't had lessons in a long time. And I'm swinging and, and this is what he says. Man, you know, you could be really good at golf. And in my heart, I was like, ah, yes, 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 yes. And, you know, I came away from that lesson and my outlook on life was amazing. The, the sun was shining, the birds were chirping, it was a beautiful day, it's a little traffic, I didn't care. Uh, life was great. And if you were to ask my wife, she probably would have said, wow, what, what is wrong with you? Like, what's, what's different? And to which I would have said, if I was honest, which I probably wouldn't have because I deal with this, um, I probably should have said, well, it's because my golf instructor told me I could be really good at golf. Um, and, and that was pretty awesome. Now, two weeks later, I play golf. And uh, needless to say, I was not the, the great golfer that my instructor had said so confidently that I could be. Um, and then I had a second lesson. And I told him that. He's like, oh, well, you just got to, you know, you just got to keep working. But you could be really good at golf. So I was like, all right, all right, bolstered again. And then I go on a golf trip, a couple days of golf, and I probably played worse than I have in like 20 years. And, you know, it's so dumb, but... I just realized in that moment, oh my gosh, I find a sense of identity and worth in something that one, doesn't matter at all, two, that I'm not even good in. I mean, how ridiculous is that? Now, you can make fun of me, that's fine. You have your own, all right? You have your own areas that you find an inordinate amount of sense of security and self-worth and you place it all on that thing. Now, why am I saying all this? Because it doesn't have to be like that. Because if I can find my identity in the Lord instead of in my terrible golf game, you know what happens? I'm okay at failure. I can tell all you I'm not that great at golf. But you know what? I love playing golf. So if you want to invite me, I'd be happy to go with you. But it, it doesn't define me as a person. And I can keep growing, right? Keep going to the driving range. My point is that we oftentimes get distracted by these things. And God actually wants you not to, like, not do anything, but God wants you to actually flourish in the gifts that he's given you, in the talents and abilities that he's given you. And those are to be done for his glory, that you might be able to quickly say, yeah, 
I mean, yes, I, I've been able to do this thing, but you know what? Like, my sense of significance and self-worth is not in the fact that I have this job or know these people or have this amount of money or drive this car or dress this way. My, my worth is found in Jesus, that he knows me, that he loves me, that he's for me, that I have an eternal reward waiting for me in heaven. That actually encourages us to find the unique ways that God has gifted you to uniquely glorify him. And this is something I love to tell people. Like, you're uniquely made, fearfully and wonderfully. And part of that is God has called you to uniquely glorify him in ways that no one else here can. But if you're constantly trying to be like someone else, trying to be someone you're not, you actually won't flourish in the God-given gifts that he's given you. So those are just two things. There are many more. But just two examples of how finding our identity in the Lord actually has impact on our life. The more I'm amazed by God's love and knowledge of me, actually the more satisfied and joyful my life will be. It's in knowing God that I can then know myself. Fully known, fully loved, and finally, just real quick, we are fully his. We're fully his. The psalm doesn't end in verse 17, right? It it continues with David's response to these truths. Look at verse 18, or sorry, 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Here's the thing about the identity that God has given you. It's not something that you just put on and put off. You don't walk through these doors and kind of put on the hat of, Christian identity, and then you walk out and you take it off and you just kind of live life the way you want it. No. God defines everything about you. And and that amazing place is a place of surrender to the Lord in all his ways that we are increasingly being conformed to his image because we know that in doing that, in obeying the Lord, that is actually the best place that we can be. That's the good path. So we see in verses 19 through 21, David hates the things that God hates. He doesn't allow himself this wonderful knowledge and love of the Lord, but then, ah, over here I'll do these things. No, he recognizes that in the knowledge and love of the Lord, it leads to complete, full surrender and dedication to the Lord. And so that's part of actually the grace that God has given you. You're not on your own. 
God owns you. You're his. And the psalm ends with verses you're probably familiar with. Verse 23 and 24. He ends with this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You know the only person who can genuinely pray that prayer? It's a person who's been forgiven and fully accepted by God. That's the only person. Because without that confidence, this is a very scary prayer. We don't want God to search us. We don't want God to know us. It's only someone who recognizes that God already knows me and he's declared that he fully loves me and accepts me, that then my heart is not to run away from the Lord and do whatever I want. No, my heart is to run to the Lord and say, Lord, conform me to your image. Lead me in your ways because I know and believe that your ways are the way of everlasting life. And that is the part of the Christian life. That's a part of it where we ask the Lord to reveal to us where are we finding our identity in things other than him. We all have these ways. Where are the places in my life where I am trying to hide from you, where I'm trying to convince you and myself and other people that I'm really not that sinful? God wants to help you deal with reality because you know what part of reality is, is you actually being lost in wonder that God loves you, the real you. There it is. We're fully known by God. You can't hide. We're fully loved by God. And we're fully his. So turn to him. Trust in him. Obey him. Let's pray. God, we ask even right now that you would search us and know us and try our thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in us. Lord, we so quickly move on from glorious truth. And so, Lord, I pray that even, even in these next few moments, Lord, that you would center our attention on you. And that, God, where there is conviction of sin for places where we have placed our identity and our worth in things other than you. God, I pray that we would confess that to you, to acknowledge reality, to acknowledge our sin. And God, we do this because 
you've spoken over us. You're my friend. You're my son. You're my daughter. And I know. And I love you. So God, we thank you for this glorious truth. Center our hearts. Center our desires on you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's, uh, let's stand and sing this song of response.